Hello everyone, Mark from Casting to Ancient Greece here. Before we start the episode today, I just want to give a quick podcast recommendation. So I'll turn it over to Steve from Spartan History Podcast to tell you more. Molon Lave, come and take them. It was with these famous words that King Leonidas of Sparta spurned the surrender offered by the Persian king Xerxes. Instead, by his refusal, he chose the immortalisation of his people's legend. Hi. I'm Steve, the host of Spartan History Podcast, where I take a chronological look at the Spartan people's beginnings in the mythic age and carry the story right through to their military dominance of classical Greece and beyond. Please check out my website at spartanhistorypodcast.com. All of my podcasts are freely available wherever you get your pods from. Come and take them. Hello, I'm Mike Selleck, and welcome back to Casting Through Ancient Greece. For today's episode, I'm going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to take a bit of a break in the regular story that we've been following for the last 12 episodes. So I believe we've reached a point where we're now transitioning into the Greek and Persian Wars. And the past 12 episodes have been looking at the backstory leading up to this point to help give us some context moving forward. So what I wanted to do was take some time out so we could recap what we've covered already as there is a whole lot of information there. Also, I wanted to take the opportunity to be able to answer some questions that have come in from listeners over the past few months as well. So I think I'll just start off with how things have been going so far since beginning the podcast. Uh, A bit of a shout out to some people that have been uh, helping me along the way. Then we'll do a bit of a recap on all the episodes that we've uh, covered so far. And then I want to dive into some questions that listeners have sent in. And today's episode will be a little bit more casual So I haven't prepared a script for this, I've just got some notes of what I want to try and cover. I recently went back to my introductory episode and re-listened to that. And in that episode, I basically stated my reasons for wanting to start the podcast in the first place, which came down to just wanting to do more than just read history, but get involved and present it to other people and hopefully let them catch the same bug I did with history. And I must say, it's now nearly eight months on since starting the podcast. And I found the time I devote to history and my enjoyment for it has just increased exponentially. I spend so much time researching and writing. It's not a chore. It's, it's, I have a great time doing it. And I'm definitely learning a lot more along the way as well. So I would definitely say that I've justified my reason for wanting to start this podcast in the first place. Now, back in January going into this podcast, I knew nothing about podcasting. My only experience was actually listening to other podcasts. I had no idea about sound software, websites, or or anything like that. So I had to basically do a lot of research and set things up. Taught myself how to build a website, how to basically use Audacity, and then basically from there just looked at how other podcasts were were operating and tried to um, follow suit, trial and error along the way. Another thing that I found extremely satisfying in this past eight months is I had done some formal studies in uh, history, and and I must admit the writing I had to do for it really started sucking my enjoyment of history out of it. And I found with podcasting, it's allowed me to write the way I want to write and speak to a general audience and talk to other like-minded people or others who are interested in history and, and hopefully spark their further interest and their desire to know more about these topics as well. 
Along the way, I've also met some other great people doing podcasts, so I just want to do a bit of a shout out to a few of them now. Definitely a big thank you to Ryan at the History of Ancient Greece podcast. Uh, Ryan has basically given me a lot of tips with podcasting, helped me spread the word of my show, and he's been a great source of information on podcasting along the way. Um, He covers much the same sort of period that I'm doing, though he's been doing it for many years now. I think he's definitely over 100 episodes. But make sure you do check out uh, the History of Ancient Greece podcast. Uh, Another one I want to give a shout out to is Steve at the Spartan History podcast. Uh, I think he's fairly new as well, maybe started around the same time as me. Um, Also Derek at the Hellenistic Age podcast. Derek's been around for a little while now. And also the King of Kings podcast, focusing mainly on the Persian Empire after Alexander the Great's death. A great uh, podcast there as well to check out. And also guys at the Midwest Meltdown podcast. They've been a great help along the way also by uh, spreading the word about my episodes, which has been a great help. So thank you guys. In general, the support I've been getting for the uh, podcast from listeners has been great also. Uh, This has just been growing month to month. I'm approaching close to 4,000 downloads. Got nearly 400 followers on Facebook and nearly 300 on Twitter at this point in time. But um, definitely always looking for more support. So basically, I think the best things to do to support the show, if people really are enjoying the series, please consider leaving a review with your favorite podcasting platform, whether that be iTunes, Stitcher, or whoever. Make sure, definitely follow follow the series on Twitter at Casting Grease. Retweet episodes, get involved in any comments, any discussions that take place. Also, follow us on Facebook at Casting Through Ancient Greece. Again, share the pages, the posts, get involved in any discussions. Also, you can subscribe at my website, which is www.castingthroughancientgreece.com. I also put more resources up on the episode pages to go a little bit more in depth. Also, just spread the word. If you have any family or friends that have some sort of interest in history and you're enjoying the podcast, recommend Casting Through Ancient Greece to them and see how they go. What I wanted to do now was do a bit of a recap of what we've covered so far in the series. We're about to head into the period that's known as the Greek and Persian Wars, so I thought it would be handy to just go back and just refresh ourselves with all the background information leading into this period. I don't want to go into any great detail, but I just want to cast ourselves back and give us a bit of a summary of everything that we've gone over so far to help jog our memories. So back some eight months ago, we began the series with the episode Greece Before History. In this first episode, we dealt with a huge expanse of time, all the way from the first evidence of human habitation in Greece to the start of the Bronze Age. From a dating perspective, this covers a time frame from somewhere between 4 and 300,000 BC to just before 3000 BC. The aim with this episode was just to give a brief overview of what was taking place in this period. We looked at the geography and the climate of Greece, which would help explain why the Greeks developed the way they did politically, socially and physically. We then moved into what current evidence was telling us about what was happening in the prehistoric times. Here we saw the evidence of the first human skulls, and we also focused on the cave site at Franchithi, which was one of the oldest continually inhabited sites in Greece. 
We then moved on and had a look at the theories of the Indo-European migrations, which looked at the possible movements of how humans were moving into Greece. Also coupled with this idea, we saw the idea of technological change and the spread of ideas, which seems likely would have been part of these migrations that happened over thousands of years. Since written resources didn't exist for this period of time, we then had a look at one of the main methods of dating and explaining certain aspects of this period, which was when we looked at how radiocarbon dating came about and how it was used. This then took us into the next episode, where we looked at the Bronze Age. In the Bronze Age, the ancestors of the ancient Greeks would start to shift into a period which would see the development of civilization. The metal bronze would give its name to this period, as this new metal would come to replace more primitive materials for making tools and weapons. Its invention remained somewhat of a mystery, but this new technology would spread afar and alter trading relations. Societies that formed would become more complex, forming around power bases, while also seeing interregional trade and diplomacy become more important. For thousands of years, these societies would be remembered and celebrated by ancient poets and authors. Much of the historical detail would be shrouded in myth, with the tales seen as nothing more than stories. Though at the end of the 19th and start of 20th century, the civilizations that had dominated the Greek world were rediscovered and allowed some elements of the myths to be reconciled with tangible evidence. The first to be rediscovered was that of the Mycenaeans, by a German named Heinrich Schliemann, who had also uncovered the city of Troy, Homer's Iliad. Another Bronze Age civilization that was rediscovered was that of the Minoans, by Arthur Evans. Though even with what has been uncovered with the rediscovery of these two civilizations, we are still much in the dark of the history of both of these. The Minoans would start to emerge as a civilization in the early Bronze Age on the island of Crete. Arthur Evans, who rediscovered this civilization, would name them the Minoans after the mythological ruler of Crete named Minos. Much of Minoan history still eludes us today, but archaeology is now providing some hints at their past. Frustratingly, though, no narrative of their past can be provided by the information that exists today. The Minoans would exert their influence out from Crete into the Aegean, perhaps making them one of the first sea powers that we can point to. Their strong trade networks around the Mediterranean would see their civilization grow and flourish for some 800 years. Volcanic eruptions and earthquakes would impact their societies periodically, but eventually they would disappear from history, replaced by another civilization who were on the rise. This time centered on the Greek mainland and who their rediscoverer, Heinrich Schliemann, would name the Mycenaeans. The Mycenaeans were the second recognizable civilization to emerge in the Greek world during the Bronze Age. They received the name we refer to them from the palace site of Mycenae, which was seen to have exerted the most influence during the period. Their golden age occurred as the Minoans were starting to fade into history, and everything that was Minoan started becoming more distinctly Mycenaean. Many of the later Greek poets would recount tales that seemed to look back at this period, such as Homer's epics, the Iliad and Odyssey. Once again, our knowledge of their history relies heavily on archaeological finds, which isn't conducive to forming a narrative of the period. We can still get an idea, though, of many aspects of their civilization from their political systems resting on a palace system dotted throughout Greece. We also get a glimpse of their trade and international relations, as well as other cultural aspects like writing, religion, and military. The Mycenaeans would also fade into history, but with some of their memories preserved by the poets of later times. Their fall would be part of a wider collapse that saw many Bronze Age civilizations disappear or lose much of their power. This would lead into a period often termed the Dark Ages. The Mycenaeans would now hit a period which saw them disappear into history, only surviving in the tales told for thousands of years. 
modern archaeology would come along and begin to try and understand their story. To this day, it still remains a mystery on why they collapsed so suddenly, with many putting forward theories on what caused this collapse. Hostile invasions, internal strife, natural disasters, and systems collapse have all been suggested. Not any one of these theories can be seen to explain why the entire Mycenaean world collapsed. Something more complex was at work. This collapse wasn't just limited to the Mycenaeans, though. Other Bronze Age civilizations from around the Mediterranean and in the Near East would also either disappear or be reduced significantly in power. Again, with their downfall being hard to explain. All over the Mediterranean world and in Greece, power and wealth seemed to be disappearing, with societies fragmenting into smaller communities. The signs in the archaeological record show evidence of cultural regression. This, along with the seemingly lack of information after the collapse, has led many to conclude that the Bronze Age world had now entered a dark age. With the collapse of the Mycenaean world, Greece fell into a darkness, and its path forward had been altered forever. Great citadels and palaces of the old lay in the ruins, with their once populous regions having been all but deserted. The now scattered populations would have seen highly destabilised societies for a generation or more. Eventually people would start to form into new settlements or reoccupy the old ruined sites, and a new normality would start to set in. Tales of the times of old would have now started filtering down to generations through space and time. Eventually these tales would be recorded by poets many generations later, immortalising figures and families, with a new script that had been developed, never to fall silent again. What had started off as a dark age, with its apparent signs of a regression, culturally and socially, would now start to progress forward. Populations and settlements would increase in size, while art and items would become more sophisticated, eventually seeing the Greek world being reborn. The Greek world now emerged out of the shadows of the Dark Ages. Traditionally, the first Olympic Games in 776 BC is meant to be the demarcation point between these two ages. But the constant growth and innovation that occurred over generations would blur the lines in the sand. The Archaic Age would see the further development of ideas and institutions, where we start to see such things as the concept of a city-state and citizenship. The increase in domestic and international contacts would see communities continuing to grow. An explosion of colonisation would also take place, as the growing populations would start to put these pressures on local resources. With the emergence of a new script, written sources now started to shed some light on life and events. But still, many gaps existed, relegating seemingly important events and conflicts to mere few lines of text. For the most part, we have to be satisfied with the later writers echoing the accounts of these contemporary writers, now lost to us. The innovations that would develop over the archaic period would be further refined and reach their peak during the classical period. It's also during the archaic period that two city-states, Athens and Sparta, would emerge and become the dominant powers moving forward. It's these two city-states that we then turned our focus to. When one says the name Sparta, thoughts of tough warriors, a disciplined life, and short catchy phrases tend to come to mind. For most, popular culture is responsible for our view of Sparta. Though much of what is presented has been over-exaggerated, and like a lot of early modern works, idealised elements contributing to what is known as the Spartan Mirage. Sparta would emerge not from grand origins of a Bronze Age palace site, but the unification of four nearby villages on the Peloponnese. Emerging of settlements in what appears to be a recovery of sorts from a Bronze Age collapse, which we would see the humble beginnings of this future powerhouse. There are a number of theories in how Sparta's ancestors came to control the area. The Spartans themselves would look to events tied up in the mythological past to explain their origins and claim to the lands they controlled. 
The way in which the settlement of Sparta expanded were influenced how their society would operate. They would take a path very different to other Greek city-states, which would see them become one of the preeminent policies, but also having to face challenges unique to themselves. With the physical city of Sparta now having been developed, it was in its early stages of building on the social structures that would come to define the Spartans themselves. It wouldn't be a conscious decision, but like most societies, consequences of their past actions and behaviours. Like most founding stories of cities and institutions, the Spartans also placed the beginnings of their constitution on a mystical shadowy figure named Lycurgus. He would be the equivalent of the old wise man, bringing stability to a troubled society. Though trying to pinpoint his actual existence in the historical record has proven elusive. With the Spartans crediting Lycurgus with the foundation of their constitution, some very unique institutions would develop. Spartan society would rest upon a dual kingship, but with a council of elders instrumental in leading the state. An education system was developed that would produce the required warriors to protect their way of life. The individual was not of importance, but how they could best serve the polis. As the Spartans approached the classical age, they were focused on spreading their influence throughout the Peloponnese. Not only were they using strength of arms, but they would also engage in diplomacy. This combination would see them being recognised within Greece and internationally as the leading power in Greece. Though they had to always remain vigilant against the threat within their own borders, the potential of a helot revolt from breaking out. The second principal city in Greece that we focused on was that of Athens. Over 5,000 years ago, a small settlement developed on top of a rocky outcrop that would come to be one of the most famous cities in the ancient world. These ancient roots would see the Athenians celebrate the fact that they were Pelasgian, or indigenous to the lands. They would not be displaced during the great upheavals of the Bronze Age collapse, which saw so many populations disperse. Athens would look back at their mythological past to help explain why their society had developed the way it did. The hero who was so important to Athens was Theseus, who was most famous for freeing Athens from its debt to King Minos after the slaying of the Minotaur. He was also seen as the origins of the idea of a democratic way of governing. In reality, the path to democracy would have many twists and turns. With the occasional detour, it would take a social crisis leading to an almost full-blown civil war for reforms to be put in place. The appearance of new popular rulers would also emerge, known as tyrants that would see yet more reforms. Two figures would emerge in the hazy historical record, credited with the enacting of some of these reforms. Draco would be known as the lawgiver, known for his harsh penalties, giving us the word draconian, while Solon would be seen by some as deserving of the title of the father of democracy. Though with these developments, Athens would still be some way off from being considered a democracy. The reforms that had been put in place by Dracon and Solon were not enough to see democracy emerge and take hold just yet. The political front in Athens at this stage was still looking very unstable, with periods of anarchy almost leading to civil war breaking out. This would see the type of leader emerge that had threatened to earlier, the tyrant. Factions were now forming around geographical areas of Attica, which fell in line roughly with the different demographics of the regions. From one of these factions emerged a leader who would become the first successful tyrant to take power in Athens. Though it would take him three attempts to successfully remain in power, Pisistratus would be Athens' first tyrant, but not in a despotic sense. His rule would be seen more favourable than the previous leaders. Once Pisistratus's rule came to a natural end, his sons would take control seamlessly, continuing the tyranny. After a long period of stability in Athens, assassination would see the tyranny take on a darker side. The surviving son, Hippias, would become the despotic ruler we all now associate with the word tyrant today. 
Eventually Hippias would be removed, with some outside help from Sparta. Faction fighting would continue to plague Athens, though another leader, Clisisthenes, would emerge. Under his leadership, Athens would see many institutions and ideas further evolve and develop that were at the heart of a democratic system. Democracy as a political system was now rising in Athens. Having seen the development of both Sparta and Athens, we then turn to a third entity. This time, not a Greek city-state, but an empire east across the Aegean Sea. This was the Persian Empire, and would come to influence Greek affairs for centuries to come. The main empire the Greeks had contact with in the Near East during the Archaic period was that of the Lydian Empire, who controlled most of Anatolia. In the late 6th century, the Lydians had brought the Ionian Greeks dotted all along the Anatolian coastline into their control. Though as powerful and wealthy as the Lydians were, a great threat appeared on their eastern border. This threat was in the shape of a new power of Persia, who only a handful of years earlier was one of a number of Iranian groups occupying the Zagros Mountains. Events around them would see this relatively small group of peoples coming to dominate their region, before then expanding and creating the Persian Empire, which Lydia would become a part of. The founder of the Persian Empire would become to known as Cyrus the Great, and like most founders, there were traditional tales to explain his background and the rise of his greatness. In just his lifetime, Cyrus would go on to create the largest empire the world had yet known, bringing the Greek world into direct contact with them. Upon the death of Cyrus the Great, the Persian Empire continued. Power transitioned to his son Cambyses. The transition was relatively smooth and the empire remained stable, and it was business as usual. Cambyses would lead a campaign and conquer Egypt, but this is where his rule took a turn for the worse, and the crisis shook the Persian court. Cambyses' reputation in the historical records suffered at the hands of the Egyptian priestly class, who he was not popular with. Reports of an attempted coup from his brother, or a conspiracy from the Magi, the Persian priests, worked their way into the account, though Cambyses would die on his way home when attempting to deal with this crisis. Power now lay with a pretender, and would so for the next six months. Another conspiracy developed, with a band of nobles who sought to bring the empire back under the rightful ruling line. The nobles would overthrow the Magi controlling power, leaving the job of ruling the empire coming down to one of them. Darius would be successful in becoming elevated to the title of King of Persia, and was at pains to show his connection to the old ruling line. Stability would return to the empire after Darius dealt with the revolting regions of his empire. Once having full control of power, Darius continued with the business of empire, and expanded the territories even more. It would be in his rule that the Greek and Persian worlds would directly collide with the onset of the Greco-Persian Wars, and the Ionian Revolt lighting the spark. This now concludes our brief summary back through what we've already covered in the series so far. Hopefully this has jogged your memories, but if not, feel free to go back and listen to those episodes again. We are now at a point where we can then continue on with the narrative going into the Greek and Persian Wars. And starting next episode, we'll be beginning with the Ionian Revolt, which is seen to be the spark of the Greek and Persian Wars breaking out. But now I want to spend the rest of the episode focusing on some questions that listeners have been writing in about. Over the past eight months, I've had questions come in every once in a while relating to the series or topics that we've covered throughout the series. So I thought this episode would be a perfect opportunity to address some of these questions. Okay, so for the first question, where am I from? I've received this question in passing many times over the months, so I thought I'd address it here. Most are trying to work out if I'm in Australia or in New Zealand. I'm Australian born and bred, with three generations behind me born and bred. Though you can consider me a Philhelene. 
All right, now I'm going to dive into something a little bit deeper. This question comes from Christian, who's the creator of the King of Kings podcast, a show looking at the history of Persia after the death of Alexander the Great. So if that sounds like something that you would be interested in, make sure you check out his show at all major podcasting platforms. So his question was, what were some of the major political and cultural differences between the Persians and the Greeks? So I feel like this topic could take up an entire episode and many comparisons could be made as you travel through time. So what I'm going to do is just for now take a basic look at some of the major comparisons that were prevalent at the point in time in where we are with the series right now. I think first up, we can look at the fact that Persia was an empire ruled by a king. As we saw in the episodes that I looked at the Persian Empire, they were ruled by an autonomous king. As the empire expanded, it would take control of previously separate cities or regions. These were then incorporated into the Persian Empire, furthering its borders. The newly acquired areas would then be subject to Persian rule and act in Persian interests. In Greece, the major political entity was the city-state, where each city was autonomous in itself. There was no rule of controlling multiple cities in what we would call a nation or an empire. The city-states in Greece shared a common language and religion, but that was about it. They could have vastly different political and social structures to each other. To the Greeks, their identity as their independent polis was highly prized amongst themselves. Although Sparta had the notion of a kingship in the dual kings, they were not kings in the sense as a Persian king. There were still other organs of the Spartan political makeup that controlled state affairs. In Persia, the king was a final authority, but in Greek city-states, there were usually multiple layers of governing and sharing power. Perhaps the tyrant in Greece would come a little closer to a ruling figure, but again, they were heavily reliant on popular support and did lose power very quickly, with tyrannies not lasting longer than a generation or two. Speaking about the common Greek language and religion, this was an aspect that all Greek city-states saw themselves culturally connected to one another. To follow different gods, or more specifically to speak another language, was to be a barbarian. Initially this name came from the fact that the Greeks were unable to understand what people from foreign lands were saying, and to them sounded like ba ba ba, similar to how we use blah blah blah, for someone rambling on about nonsense. Though this title would come to mean someone of an inferior culture, with being Hellenic held above all else. It's hard to tell if the Persians saw their culture in a similar way, but from face value it appears to be more a pragmatic approach. It wasn't about their culture being considered more important, but keeping power bases within Persian families. The Persian Empire was the most culturally diverse entity on the globe. What the Persian court thought of the different cultures they ruled over isn't entirely clear. Maybe, Christian, you could expand on this at some stage, since the Persians are your specialty. What mattered, though, was that the different groups paid their tribute and acted in Persian interests. To help accommodate this, the Persians were prepared to tolerate local customs and practices, so the Persians seemed to be more interested in the smooth running of the empire and prepared to tolerate the different groups within the empire provided they acted as the Persians wished. The culture of the group was of secondary importance. I hope that's a good start to your question, Christian, but there's definitely many more themes and elements to get deeper into which I'm sure you will probably do later in the future. Everyone else, make sure you check out the King of Kings podcast, where you'll find a trove of information on the Persians. The podcast can be downloaded from any major podcasting platform, and also you can follow Christian's series over on Facebook at the King of Kings podcast, and on Twitter at PersiaCast. So the next question I'll address is, what is your favourite period in Greek history? This question has also been asked quite a number of times. I'd have to say, since first encountering Greek history, Greek and Persian war period 
has remained my favourite period to immerse myself into. I love the story of these small independent city-states who can barely cooperate between themselves having to stand up to the largest empire yet seen. There seems to be much contrasting between the sides and the mix of tales also makes for interesting and entertaining experience. I find that the traditional tales add an air of mystery to the period and allow for many thought experiments. This is what makes ancient history so fascinating to me. It is the not ever knowing the full story and having arrived there with your own deductions. Having said that though, I do find all of ancient Greek history interesting, otherwise I wouldn't have bothered embarking on this journey to attempt to retell the whole story. And my next question comes from someone I met in the last couple of months of starting my series. Will you be covering Greek mythology? This is a question I received from Jeff Murray, a very talented artist, during a chat we had. His work, Ascend Necropolis, is hanging proudly on my wall. He is currently working on another piece that is a map of the ancient Greek world, depicting all the gods and heroes within it. So from our chat, I could tell that Jeff had an interest in Greek history, but also a fascination with the Greek myths. My aim was to retell the history of ancient Greece. The myths become relevant along the way, but for the moment, I am just addressing them in passing. Perhaps down the track, I might do a few episodes devoted to the myths, but I feel like it deserves its own series. For the moment, though, my focus is on the history and giving quick explanations of the gods and heroes as they're brought up. So I'm not saying I won't be covering them in detail, but we'll just have to wait and see how I decide to deal with them. Anyway, make sure you check out Jeff's work at www.jeffmurray.co.uk. Next is another commonly asked question. Uh, What is the plan for the series going forward? Uh, The plan for the series remains much the same as what it had initially set out to do, which I went over in my first introductory episode. We're going to continue chronologically with the story of Greece. Beginning next episode, we'll be heading into the Greek and Persian Wars. Though now that I've seen how things have developed and seen potential possibilities, and more importantly, that there is an interest in what I'm doing, I've started to think of ways to have listeners participate more in the series as we move along. One of my ideas was to run competitions once in a while where people could write in on certain topics that I put out there. This could be what ifs, how would you approach a historical event, or whatever I make the question out to be. Also, I think doing semi-regular Q&A episodes could be a good idea where we can track back over past episodes. Uh, Another idea I had was doing some sort of live stream along the way where it could delve a bit deeper into certain topics covered in the series. Uh, Down the track, I also thought about doing some guest episodes where we could add a bit more depth to subjects that we've already covered. Or even doing episodes with other history podcasters covering similar topics, presenting more of a discussion episode. Anyway, these are all possibilities that I've seen that could work well along the way. But let me know what you think and what you would like to see happen in the show. Okay, for another slightly more in-depth question. Uh, This one comes from Steve, who's the creator of the Spartan History podcast. So if you're interested in Spartan history and uh, myth, make sure you check out the Spartan History podcast and any um, podcasting platform. So Steve asks, what were the different dialects present in Greece and what became of them? So we covered how the Greek alphabet came into being, travelling across the Aegean from the Phoenicians before them being altered into what would become the Greek alphabet. But although the Greeks had an alphabet, they didn't all speak the same form of Greek. They spoke in different dialects. The oldest known Greek dialect was that of Mycenaean Greek, which you could probably guess was spoken during the Bronze Age. Though as time moved on, 
and with such world-changing events like the Bronze Age collapse, upheavals of populations occurred. This saw regions being completely abandoned by some groups, to later be reoccupied by others. While migrations over the centuries saw other new groups of people move in and mix with the local populations, sometimes bringing new ideas and language. This mixing of language groups goes some way into explaining why they ended up with different dialects forming. For example, the dialect that the Athenians spoke, Attic, which was a very close relation to Ionic, shows some words that appear to be rooted in an older language, probably indigenous to the area before Greek speakers arrived. These words do not appear to be a part of other dialects, and this is what makes Ionic its own distinct dialect. The indigenous language of the area would be replaced by the newer Greek language, but elements of the older language had some influence on the newer one, creating a distinctive dialect over time. So that's a very basic summary on the theory of how dialects could be formed. If you really want to go down the rabbit hole on the spread and influence of language, I recommend the book The Horse, the Wheel and Language by David W. Anthony. The book is much broader in scope than just Greece, but well worth a read. So in Greece around the end of the Archaic period and moving into the Classical period, there are four main dialects that can be matched up with different regions. These were Doric, Ionic, Aeolic, and Achaean, though there are subgroups to these as well, but I'm just going to stick to a general basic outline for now. The largest of the groups was that of the Doric Greek, which seems to have originated in northwestern Greece, before moving south into the Peloponnese, which helped give rise to the theory of the Dorian invasion. As well as most of the Peloponnese, Doric was spoken in Crete, southern Anatolia, and a number of islands in the Ionian, Aegean and Mediterranean seas. Next is Ionic, which Attic is very closely related to. Uh, this was spoken throughout Attica, Euboea, many of the Aegean islands, and central Anatolia in the region of Ionia. Uh, the next one, Aeolic, seems to have originated in the northern parts of Greece, up in uh, Thessaly, and then it was transferred to the north Anatolian coast amongst the Greek cities there as well as finding its way into some of the northern islands, such as Lesbos, during its transmission. Uh, the fourth one that we'll look at is Archean, which appears to have been the original language spoken in the Peloponnese, before Doric made its appearance. By this stage, though, only the north-central part of the Peloponnese still spoke an Archean-type dialect. The different dialects can often be attributed to writing that has been uncovered, but the transmission of the Greek dialects throughout the Greek world often comes down to a literary tradition told by the ancient Greeks themselves. These dialects would roughly remain throughout the Classical Age, but with the coming of the Hellenistic Age after the death of Alexander the Great, a new dialect had been forming and would come to replace most of the dialects spoken throughout the Greek world, and this was known as Koine Greek, or Common Greek. So I hope that helps answer the question somewhat, though I feel I've only just scratched the surface. This subject could take up an entire episode. Maybe when we're a little further along the story, we'll revisit this topic with the dialects during the Classical Age. On the episode's page, I'll leave up a link to a map which outlines the regions and the dialects that were spoken in them, just to give a better understanding. Thanks again, Steve, for your question, and make sure you check out his podcast, Spartan History Podcast. And you can follow him over on Facebook, at Spartan History Podcast, and Twitter, at Spartan History. Alright, so lastly, I'm going to end with a question which has also been asked quite a number of times. 
how can I support the series financially? So first up, I just want to say that I have no plans on making people pay for the series at all. I want it to stay free for everyone. And secondly, I have been completely humbled that people have been wanting to show their support financially. It makes me feel like I'm doing something right. My goal for the moment is to build up my content and a following. So the support from sharing my episodes, leaving reviews on iTunes, and just spreading the word has been fantastic. Once I had established myself, I was going to look at different options for attempting to build a small revenue, as it would be nice to cover my costs such as web and podcast hosting, as well as equipment and resources. But if people really want to support the show financially, I might look at options sooner rather than later, which will allow people to donate if they choose to and find some value in what I'm doing. Whether this will be through PayPal, Patreon, or some other means, I need to do some research into. And perhaps even down the track, then I can start looking at making some supplemental or bonus material available to those supporting me in this way, as a bit of a thank you. But I must stress, the series itself is going to remain free. Okay, I feel I've set out and achieved what I wanted to for this episode. We've gone back and done a recap of the episode since its beginning, which I hope has jogged people's memories on some of the topics, but feel free to go back and to listen to those episodes again. Um, also, I've addressed most of the questions I've received, but definitely if you have questions, keep them coming in and I will definitely be saving them and answering them the next time we do one of these type of episodes. All I can say is thank you for the support, everyone, so far. It's been fantastic. Continue supporting the series. Jump over to my website at www.casting through ancient Greece. Subscribe to me there. Comment on episode pages there. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Casting Greece, on Facebook at Casting Through Ancient Greece. And also, if you're enjoying the series, drop a review on iTunes. That's always great support. And I think that will wrap us up for now. So until next time, thanks for the support, everyone. And we'll be jumping back into the narrative and beginning the Greek and Persian Wars with the Ionian Revolt.